Hey y'all, it's Kelsey. Cool Queers doing cool shit took a little summer siesta, but we are back and we are ready to keep playing for the rest of the season. The last few weeks, I've had the gift of being in a constant state of awe-filled learning. I attended a writing workshop in Amherst, Massachusetts, where I learned from writers I deeply admire and made such deep lifelong friends. I started querying agents for my book, which is scary and exciting. I played in Las Vegas to celebrate my partner's birthday, and I've been rolling in the abundance that my yard is offering me with sun-dried tomatoes currently baking in the dehydrator as we speak. June was learning, and July is marinating. It felt so freaking good to step away from work for a bit, and it's been pretty humbling and reality-making to come back and see how I see myself at work and in work. The online world has also been shaking as the Threads app launched in the night last week. You can find me over there at Kelsey underscore dot underscore org, trying to figure out how the hell to combine my love of weird words from Twitter and my love of weird images from Instagram. It's truly chaos, but we're making it through. All this to say, I'm so elated to be back to the podcast. These last four episodes of season one are chock full of love, of opportunity, of laughter, of learning, and of course, a whole lot of queerness. Today, we have the pleasure of learning from Ash Williams. I first got to know Ash in a state of, to be honest, online admiration. For the last many years, he has led efforts to fund abortions, fund people's bail, fund people's gender-affirming care, and make sure those folks that are having abortions, having gender-affirming care, and who are incarcerated or detained have the resources that they need. After fangirling from afar, I recently got to be in workspace with him as we supported abortion providers in their community building. And to say I was excited when he agreed to come on the show is an enormous understatement. Ash Williams is a Black, trans, abortion doula, public intellectual, and abolitionist community organizer from Fayetteville, North Carolina. For the last five years, Ash has been vigorously fighting to expand abortion access by funding abortions and training other people to become abortion doulas. Ash is an abortion doula with the Mountain Area Abortion Doula Collective, or MADCO. This conversation offered me so much grounding and connection, and I hope it does the same for y'all. So let's dig in. Hi, Ash. Thank you so much for joining us today on Cool Queers Doing Cool Shit. How are you? Hi, Kelsey. I'm so excited to be here, and I'm doing well. How's your summer been? It's been a really wild summer. A lot of working going on not enough beach. Um, I was looking at my partner just yesterday, like, are we going to get to the beach or are we not? It's that <laughs> point in the summer. And it's like, if you don't have it down, you might not be going to the beach. So you got to build it there. in, build it into the regimen, the beach regimen, the beach. Yes. <laughs> I need it. We went to the beach a lot last summer and got our work done. Um, but I need to do that a little bit this year. Haven't done it yet. Looking forward to it. Yeah, I hope y'all can create that space for yourselves because the beach is definitely a healing place. Yeah. Where are you tuning in from today? Today I am tuning in from stolen um, Uchi and Cherokee territories, also known as Asheville, North Carolina. And that's home for you, yes? Yeah, Ash and Asheville. Ash and Asheville, baby! <laughs> Oh, 
Well, I really am so thrilled to spend some time with you today. I so deeply admire your work and the way that you share energy in space with your community in Asheville and across the country. So I'm just really feeling so lucky to be in conversation with you. Thank you again. Thank you for having me. So our first question is a question that I ask everyone who joins the program, since this is a celebration of all things queer. Uh, I truly believe that queer is not only an adjective or a noun. I believe that queer is a verb and something that we can live. So I'd love to hear what you are queering in your life right now. Mm, queering in my life. I am, I'm querying what it means to take care of people in the face of rising criminalization. Mm. I'm querying what it means to like take care of myself as someone on probation, um, as someone who has been called to like show the fuck up for people right now and show up for myself in particular ways. And when you ask that question, Kelsey, I cannot help but think of uh, Cruising Utopia and Jose Esteban Munoz and that introduction. Um, I feel like all gender studies nerds at one point, we almost like, uh, what is it when you remember by heart, um, we could recite that introduction. I'm just thinking like, we are not yet queer. Queerness is not yet here. Um, but yeah, like queer. Um, um, I am queering what it means to like have a family uh, and be in community with other folk. I'm also queering violence. I'm queering violence as a, a response, as a response to what the fuck is going on. Mm-hmm. I think we're going to dig deeper into all of these areas that you're querying over the course of this conversation, just naturally, because of Great. who you are and what you do and how you spend your precious time. Um, because... In a very queer way, we met as online acquaintances in the Twitter universe before our worlds collided in real life through both of our work showing up for and supporting abortion advocates, abortion providers, people who have abortions. So I feel so fortunate to have been in kind of multiple different kinds of spaces with you, both in the internet universe and on earth. (laughs) And this is just one important part, this abortion justice work of the community-centered work that you do in North Carolina. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You're also leading mutual aid efforts to bail folks out of jail. You're funding abortions. You're organizing jail support. You inform folks on the way that they can participate in court watching. So before we dig into all of these many facets of how you, Ash, show up for people, and it sounds like how you're actively queering how you show up for people, I'd love to start from the beginning and really hear your story of self. So could you share what brought you to this place on earth where you're so radically committed to the folks in your community? Mm, Yeah, yes. And, you know, Kelsey, thanks to you and other people who have just been asking great questions this summer, I've actually been able to think more and more about this like story of self of mine. Um, And something that's true for me is that I am the child of military parents. Um, I'm a so-called dependent, um, I am someone who's lived on a military base. I'm someone who was really steeped in the carceral logics of the military industrial complex, the ways that that collides with the prison industrial complex. Um, And what's true for me is that I started organizing like alongside other military youth um, on a military base, trying to advocate for 
like what we needed as um, people who had to move around a lot with our parents without adequate support. So we were trying to get things like improvements to the youth center, like better programming and better balls to play with. And like the playground equipment was crappy and we wanted other stuff. We wanted better food options. We wanted to go on better field trips off base, things like this. But we were also advocating for like better access to like transitional support services in schools. Many of the military youth um, that I was working with, they went to school on base um, and both on base or off base, the students were navigating a lot of hardships as it relates to integrating into different like school, like societies um, and also having to keep up with what the hell our parents have going on as well as the impact of like multiple deployments on the family. Around the time that I was coming up, the military pretended to uh, like give a damn about military families and also uh, people who were experiencing sexual assault. And so those are two big kind of moments for me, even as I was like steeped in this very disciplinary and corrective culture. Um, but I learned a lot about working with other people and appealing to the people in power to like get what we want and what we need, as well as starting to think about how do we take care of each other um, with these gaps of the state, with the gap in the systems and structures that are supposed to carry us. Like, what do we do with that? Um, and of course, that was when I was in high school and, and um, kind of going into college. And then when I got to school, you know, everything really changed for me. Um, and thank goodness, thank goodness it changed. Um, because there I got to have the opportunity to even turn away from all of those logics that I was being steeped in, all of this like white supremacy culture that I had learned to regurgitate. It was like, yeah, no, nah, like that shit is not saving you as a civil in the civilian world as a regular person, which we, I am, which military families are like regular, regular, regular people. That shit is not <laughs> going to save you. Your military ID is not your get out of jail free card. Like, yeah, that kind of shit. Um, but also meeting people um, and the people that I was meeting and what I was learning in school was really rupturing a lot of the stuff that held me together. And I'm so grateful for that. I'm grateful for the other rupturing experiences that I had um, as I was thinking about like what kind of person I wanted to be in the world, what I really wanted to think about and what I wanted to study. Um, I was doing a lot of student organizing alongside other um, students who like knew that we deserved more and knew that the people um, that were a part of our campus community, we knew that those other people deserved more as well. Um, like the under paid uh, staff, the underpaid custodians, the, the people who feed the students and clean the dorms, um, and um, some of the teachers, some of the teachers as well. Um, I was really interested in things like tuition freezes, you know, getting the chancellor to like be more accountable, take less money, stopping the insidious board of governors in the UNC system to like stop fucking us all over that kind of stuff. And during this organizing, I was really turned out, Kelsey, and turned on to community organizing um, because folks were letting me know that, like, it's my responsibility as a so-called student to really bring out those resources 
that I'm afforded as a person in this campus community, get that shit out of the, the campus and onto the streets and really be committed to working in community beyond the colonized university campus, right? It was queer and trans Black people in the community that were like, it's not enough what you're doing on campus. You actually live here um, and you are at risk of like being killed or uh, not having the stuff that you need to live just like the rest of us who live in Charlotte are. I um, went to school in Charlotte. And of course there was a lot going on there when I was going in school, going uh, or in school, like uh, HB2, we were fighting HB2 when I was in college. I was doing things like um, ripping the bathroom placards off of the bathroom signs in the philosophy department, which was winning AM at the time. Mm -hmm. um, and I was putting like signs that said, anyone can go to the bathroom here. At the time, there weren't any gender neutral bathrooms on campus. Mm -hmm. um, and this, this anti-trans legislation was definitely threatening to impact uh, what it meant for trans folks to use the bathroom on public universities. And so I went back and forth with campus police all semester that spring um, putting up signs. They would put up their signs. I would tear them down. And I was like, we are going to, we can do this until I don't go here anymore. Um, and so I was really radicalized working alongside other students and queer and trans community folks. Um, and we were uh, resisting the state violence of things like HB2 and the just the local discrimination that we were experiencing in our, in our town, in our city. And we were also fighting against the police. We were um, saying no to police violence in the way of like rapidly responding um, to ourselves and our to our community after the police would kill someone where we lived. Um, so we were the folks um, making sure that the families um, of those who were murdered, like having the enough funeral resources or being connected to legal supports, um, whether they wanted to try to pursue something through like legal apparatuses or like through community means. We were also doing a lot of political education about like, what does it even mean to be an abolitionist? What are the alternatives to calling the police? Um, we, I know that like much like doula work, that stuff has to happen locally. Um, there are no like people at the top that are like thinking all these things through and then they're letting us know about what we need to do. It's mm -hmm. like what we create, what we do it has to be constituted by those of us who are here and i really believe that about like the doula collective that i'm involved in and the work that i do locally as a doula as well um and i'm so grateful for these transformative ruptures um that really guided me and make me be who i am today which i believe is radically different from who i was becoming you know 15 years ago it's not that long ago i'll be 31 this year Happy birthday when you're 31. Thank you. <laughs> I had no idea we're the same age. I also turned 31 this year. Oh, cool. Those What's returns, your... you know, I the know. returns. We're in it. We're, we're out returning of it. to it. ourselves. Yeah. <laughs> um, this is so, my mind is really blown in terms of hearing about your upbringing and the environment that you were raised in, because clearly something that you were really moved by from the beginning, it sounds like, was the impact of family separation. Um, when folks are deployed, that's essentially what the government's forcing onto families and communities that are in military families is this forced family separation. And 
I can just see now these very clear and evident threads through what you do in terms of when folks are removed from their homes, their families, their communities, whether because they're being incarcerated, whether because they're having to travel and leave their communities to get basic health care, you're really stepping in and showing up for folks when, for all intents and purposes, they're being intentionally failed. So I'm I'm just really moved to see this through line through your entire organizing upbringing. Um, thank you for sharing all thank of that. Thank you for naming that. Thank you for naming it that way. Hmm. So my next question for you you know, efforts to financially disenfranchise people from their right to their bodily autonomy, to their freedom, to their health and safety, all seem to be really core to what you're doing as an organizer today. And it sounds like it's always been really core to what you've done as an organizer. Would you be willing to reflect on how you see all of these aid efforts that you participate in and lead as intrinsic and necessary to do in tandem? Yeah, um, I know that a lot of the work can't happen unless people's needs are met, like material needs, like folks need food, they need a place to stay, they need money, uh, they need access to resources, they need support. Um, I'm thinking about those things in common with, uh, as it relates to people who are incarcerated and as it relates to people who are seeking healthcare um, and when that healthcare is being criminalized. Um, I also am really thinking about the ways that, um, like in the kind of following these, uh, following those two threads, I'm thinking about like gender affirming and medically necessary care and how it is working with incarcerated people that reminds me that like gender affirming care is medically necessary care. And then I'm able to articulate the ways in which pregnancy and abortion care are uh, examples of uh, gender affirming care. Mm -hmm. Um, I know that we have to do like this work at the same damn time, because I know that it falls apart if we don't. Um, and I'm thinking also about how, um, you know, I'm, I'm funding two abortions right now. Um, and one is for someone who's in the Bahamas. Another one is for someone who's traveling to New Mexico. And both of these folks cannot afford, um, to pay for their abortions on their own. And until I was able to establish that they can trust that I'm going to help them pay for the abortions, um, you know, we weren't able to talk about the other things that they're wondering about. And now that we have that established, that it is very possible for them to have an abortion if they want to, because at the time of their appointment, they're going to have the money, um, we're able to talk about the other concerns that they have, like things that they can expect and the things that they need for after their procedures. Um, yeah, and I'm also thinking, Kelsey, about how sometimes in my my organizing work, I've been made to feel or even taught to feel like these things ought to be separate or they could be addressed separately. But that's another one of the reasons why I love the reproductive justice framework, because it actually establishes that we can't leave any of the parts of ourselves Mm -hmm. Um, and so I'm relying on that. Like, don't take it from me, like take it from the RJ framework, you know, um, we have to do these things at the same time. I love that so much. You, you brought up this kind of cyclical tie between folks who are incarcerated and how gender affirming care we know is medically necessary because of the impact that we see when folks are detained in facilities that are not at all the safe place for them to be because of their gender identity. And then also this tie between abortion care and gender affirming care in terms of 
when folks are able to end a pregnancy that they don't want, they can live their whole lives and, and be their authentic selves in the gender identity that they are and that they know. And I think that's such an important point to make because when we see them as, as that connected, we see that this whole justice-oriented work that we're doing in community has to be a part of this like larger whole effort. And unfortunately, I think that a lot of white feminism led, I don't even want to call it organizing, it's it's been the opposite of that, like pitting issues against each other um, has led to a really big crack in the way that folks think about different issue areas of like abortion as one home of, you know, what we're voting for, what we're working for. Um, and that's just a lie that it creates this immense disservice to everyone who's living in community as, and is in need of all of these whole pieces of the parts. Say that. <laughs> so that's so real I uh I, I'm wondering if because you just shared a couple examples of like as you're helping folks access abortion care really filling in the resources that they'll need in terms of aftercare and follow-up care would you be willing to share this is a follow-up question to all of this like some mm -hmm. of the misinformation or like common I, I think a lot as someone who does a lot of work in the media and thinking about messaging and like the mm -hmm. truth about abortion that gets lied about so often in the media. Like, mm -hmm. what are some of the most common <laughs> things that people get, not wrong, but just like okay. have been told the wrong stories about when it comes to accessing their care? The wrong stories about the wrong stories about. So there's a few different things that are coming up for me or like, there's so many mythologies. There's so many lies. And there's so many like explicit anti-abortion logics that get seeped into people trying to talk about what they need, what other people need, or what they don't need, what other people don't need. Um, and I'm for me, it goes back to stigma and shame. Like mm -hmm. what these things are rooted in our stigma and shame. I'm thinking about, okay, let's just actually take one. So this idea that having multiple abortions is bad um both like psychologically I've heard people try to make this point and or physically um and I'm so glad to be in community and in conversation with actual abortion providers and other people who've had multiple abortions that share their experiences and we know that these things are not true um but they are tropes uh they're tropes they're things that people say they regurgitate um, they put on other people, they put on themselves. Um, I'm really, I'm really interested about this one because it comes up as I am training other people to become abortion doulas. So mm. we are, you know, dispelling mythologies all day, kind of as a, uh, a learning tool throughout our learning together over the four weeks. And sometimes at the end of the four weeks, we go back to like, okay, these are these, what, where did it come from? Who said abortion should be rare? Who said abortion can be a primary form of birth control? And we, yeah, it's so important for us to like talk about those things and again and again, because what I know is that there are so many cultural, social, political things that are playing into what we think about these, the answers to these questions for ourselves and how we think in a, thinking about them relationally. And so we really have got to critically interrogate that stigma and that shame. Um, 
Yeah. Those are just three that. things that come up for me. I mean, it and gets I my hate brain. those things. I fucking hate those things too. It gets my brain and body moving in so many directions because it's like, where did that bullshit come from? It came from like Christo fascist definitions mm-hmm. of like what our bodies are quote unquote supposed to do. We're not supposed to have sex. We're not supposed to experience pleasure. We are only supposed to have sex with one partner and you're supposed to be a vagina and a penis and make a baby and have a family and like, fuck all of that. And it's the mm. sterility of it all. Like, yeah. Uh, they, it really undermines all of us it undermines mm-hmm. all of us so much it really does so yes those examples are so important and it makes me so mad <laughs> oh so you um but you're making all of this possible and and I just want to shout out the way that you're making funding and supporting folks who are needing that support so accessible so on your Twitter account and across other social media accounts, you really just put the fucking call out there. You're like, this person needs funds. Let's get this person their abortion. Here's the Venmo. You make it easy. And I, yeah, I wish that folks could see how much is possible when we are providing that direct service, that direct support, um, and opening up those channels of how we can just show up for each other. So thank you for doing that because it's really showed me how easy it can be. It doesn't have to be so hard. Yeah. Well, I learned it from abortion funds. Yeah. I, le- I just like did what I did at my job working for an abortion fund and connecting people to resources. And I made a commitment to continue doing that, even though no one's paying me. Mm. Still the same skills mostly the same values. And the difference is I get to support more people. Um, because the nonprofit industrial complex for me is like a little bit of a middle person. Uh, yeah. That's not always necessary. And I realized that um, and how some people do feel more comfortable going through uh, a middle person, a vehicle. Um, and, and I know that it is possible and necessary for all of us to like not wait on our nonprofit institutions to help us. Uh, but we can fund abortion right now. We can bail people out of jail right now. Um, and it functions similarly. But I would like to offer that it's like much more liberatory and we're fucking faster. And I don't have to tell somebody, I'm sorry, I can only give you $125 towards your abortion. It's like, hell no. Or like, we're funding them all. We're getting them all funded. We are walking into appointments knowing that we have enough money. Um, that's what I want to, that's what I want to support people in doing. And, you know, Kelsey, as I'm thinking about the similarities and the differences in like funding abortions and bailing people out of jail, something that I have been actually wanting to write more about and think more about, but I don't have a lot of time. I'm just going to keep doing it. But like, it is much easier for me to fund an abortion than it is to get someone, bail someone out of jail, like raise the money. And that's interesting to me because I have the same urgency, like I have the same urgency or for me, like similar things are at stake, like self-determination. Um, I know, I know what, it, what it's like if someone doesn't have the money at the time of their appointment. I know what it's like if someone has to spend three more hours in jail. It, it is the difference between life and death. It can be the difference between um yeah like a lack of uh, uh, like captivity and freedom like 
Um, and I feel like very urgently and similarly about them. And that's how I get them done. And I feel like one of the things that one of the areas that I'm going to have to grow in is actually being able to articulate like why these things are urgent in the same way. Mm. Um, or, and sometimes like bailing someone out of jail is, is more urgent than getting an abortion. And what I want to say is like, I know that like, it's all there. It's all within the community that I'm a part of, that you're a part of. We can bail people out of jail. We can fund abortions. Um, we can get it done, but it has to be together. I mean, that's the point. Where do you think, let's talk about it it because this is such an important noticing that you've had of where people are more quote unquote comfortable or likely to fund. So if you put out the same call for the same amount of dollars, what I'm hearing you say is that it's easier and more likely to get the abortion funded than to bail someone out of jail. Yeah. Yes. Where Mm -hmm. do you think that, like, where is that rooted? Do you think? Well, you know, one of the reasons why I'm an abolitionist is because of the way that uh, like places of incarceration, they disappear people and they um, really, I don't like binaries. And one of them is, uh, or one of the ones that I'm interested in disrupting is inside and outside. And so the actual structure of the prison, the walls of the prison, the fucking securest accounts and the jpay right like those things function to make me and you feel like okay y'all are really on the outside and these people like they are really on the inside of this thing um i know that there are these these things that are like functioning to make me feel like that and the prisons are good kelsey they're kind of good at invisibilizing people Mm. invisibilizing concerns problems and oppressions hiding it like literally hiding it from people. Um, And I think that it feels like further away from people's consciousness. They're not as proximate to the danger. Um, With abortion, people, I don't know, they know that like if they use this money, if they pay their money, like they can help someone access an abortion um, when it's happening, which is always very soon, they know mm. it feel I think in some ways it feels more direct for people. And they're not clear that them giving their money to get someone out of jail is just as direct. It's uh, uh, the same mechanism, right? If we could send people money to get them out of jail, we would, uh, but it doesn't exactly work like that. Sometimes we have to send it to a friend or a grandmother, or we're going to take the money to the bonds person, or we're going to mm. um, get the full bond amount and hand it over. Um, yeah, it's the same. That's so fascinating. It is the same. Yeah, it is all the same. And I think that's so important what you named about maybe people think that funding abortion is more digestible or approachable because it's time contained of like, okay, this is going to happen tomorrow. I can see the quote unquote, like direct impact that these dollars are making on a person. And in fact, what you're really naming is that it's exactly the same when you're funding someone to get out of jail. When you donate those funds, you're helping someone escape that inside outside binary, escape that disappearing act that the prison is so intentionally enacting. Mm-hmm. And, um, gosh, like bringing up JPay, I, I just think there, there are so <laughs> many yeah. corrupt <laughs> structures that mm. folks are just completely 
consumed by and wound up by and like made to be dependent on when incarcerated that I feel like so many folks have no awareness of. So like for people who aren't aware, JPay is this like fake economy that the prison industrial complex has set up for folks who are incarcerated to, because while you're incarcerated, you still have to buy and obtain most of your own commodities. And you have to purchase them and purchase time on the phone and purchase tampons and purchase everything that you might need to continue living your life through this fake economy, JPay. Um, and so that in and of itself of like creating these social systems in prisons that you're then dependent on is such an important facet of like why folks get consumed by this complex and that's just like one thread of it all right um mm -hmm. if folks don't have funds in their jpay account then they can't obtain just like basic services resources items that they need to live mm -hmm. their lives mm -hmm. oh um wow anything else to say about jpay that, let's fuck look at JPay. Fuck JPay. <laughs> and fuck Securus too. And fuck Securus too. Uh, yeah. Good. Okay. Well, I'm glad that this, this conversation has actually opened up many important uh, opportunities for people to learn more about how fucked our jail systems are. <laughs> um, I want to move in a in a direction of of possibility. Um, because I think we can all spend all day thinking about everything that's keeping us small and everything that's keeping us controlled and contained. Um, but something I think a lot about is the power of queerness and how queerness makes everything possible because in and of itself, queerness erases definition. It erases boxes. Um, it's an opening, an opening of identity, an opening of understanding. And I'd love to hear what queerness makes possible for you in the way that you navigate the world? Queerness makes life possible for me mm. in a world that's trying to kill me. Mm. And I am thinking about how for, to me, queerness is about, or queering, like as a verb, it's about like destabilizing what we think we know about a thing. And being willing to like suspend that to see if something else is real, something else is true. Um, and there's there's a need for that. There's a need to always like uh, speak or try to find the opening, um, an opening of understanding, as you put it. Or to, you know, make a binary like shrivel up. Um, and try to really uncover something it's it's such an it's such an uncovering and it makes so much possible for me it makes life possible for me I love that I love those possibles when you think of what it would look like for everyone to be able to tap into those possibles and what that could mean so a future where we're all able to live safe and pleasurable lives what does that look like and what do we need to do, learn or unlearn to make that world possible? Mm. What do we need to do, Kelsey? One of the things we need to do is divest from the Supreme Court in order to make the world <laughs> that I want to see possible. We're going to have to 
divest from the Supreme Court um, and a few other institutions, if I might add. Um, but it look what it what it looks like to me is is a place a world where abortions are free and everyone is able to have the best abortion that they can have. Um, and for me, that's one that they don't have to pay for, one that they have the necessary emotional um, and financial and physical support for, where they have all of the options and all of the things that they need to be able to decide for themselves. Um, it looks like a world where, where um, it looks like a world where prisons are obsolete where we actually no longer have a need for them. And as A. Sean Crowley puts it, it's an otherwise world. Um, in a lot of ways, Kelsey, like, I don't fucking know. And I'm excited about that part too. Like, I don't have any clue. And I know like, it's not just up to me in terms of what that world will look like. I wanna talk to other people about what it will be like. Cause I hopefully I won't be the only one you know, who's able to partake. That's right. Or like, yeah. Yeah, the people like of my of my kind of being, we won't be the only ones like able to enjoy the fruits of that. Mm. Hopefully there'll be a lot of other people there weighing in. Yeah. Thank you. This has been such a beautiful period of time. I'm so happy to be in community with you, to call you friend, to learn from you every day. Um, I, if if listeners want to support you or learn more about the work that you do, where can they find you? Where can they uh, support your doula training program, abortion funding, bail funding? Shout it all out. Um, I really want folks to follow Charlotte Uprising on Instagram. Um, there they can always stay up on who I am co-conspiring with to get the fuck out of jail. I want folks to follow madco.abortiondoulas on Instagram. And there you can support all the abortions I'm trying to fund and help all the people make it to their appointments, which are soon, which are all soon. And I also want for people to connect with me on Twitter for however long it exists. Um, my name there is <laughs> Ash underscore Bash 23. And I'll be there um, as long as I can. Um, and I don't think I'm going to go to another place. Um, and actually, you know, I'll have to find somewhere else, I guess, to like fund all the abortions. Mm. Um, if Twitter goes away. More to come there. I know. I know we're all trying to figure out where the fuck we're going to go after this, but yeah. <laughs> RIP Twitter. I feel like I've said RIP Twitter maybe a hundred times this year. So we'll see how long it's breathing its final breath, but it, there is such important organizing work there. Mm -hmm. Most of it being led by black and queer and trans folks. So um, I'm going to ride the Twitter wave out too. There's really good shit happening there. <laughs> Well, thank yeah. you for sharing all those ways that folks can follow you and get involved and support you. Any closing words that you want to share? Thanks for listening. Oh, thanks for sharing. You're such a blessing. Thank you so much for everything that you do and everything you are. Thanks for having me, Kelsey. It was such a pleasure to talk to you today. You too. Take care, Ash. Thank you. Bye. Bye.
I mean, come on. What an amazing conversation full of so many generous offerings from Ash. Hearing his story helped me reflect on the ways that I am tied to and care about narratives of family separation and community separation and reminded me how easy it is and how able we all are to show up for each other. I really deeply encourage you to follow, support, and uplift Ash and his work. Fund all the everything that he shares, requests for, it all matters so much, and it makes a huge difference. Thank you so much for tuning in today. Thanks for your patience as we took a summer break. I deeply appreciate everyone's support of Cool Queers Doing Cool Shit by sharing it with your loved ones, posting about it on your social media, reviewing the program, and following the show on Spotify. Okay, all ye queers, take care, be well, and do something that makes you laugh today. Mm -hmm.